Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. We've been in a series, uh, A Growing Faith, as many of you know. And if you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Uh, this is the last one, so you can listen to the others online. Uh, but uh, hopefully it's been profitable and helpful for people to think through how it is we grow in our faith. And each week I've been reminding us what faith is. Oftentimes we get a fuzzy idea of, 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 of what it is that we talk about when we talk about faith. And many people think it's something that you need to have lots of to you know, move mountains and uh, heal people and raise the dead. And many people think it's this magical potion thing that uh, we can just kind of do some kind of incantation and do amazing things. And, and throughout the scriptures, we see, though, that that's not how the word faith is thrown around. It's not how it's used. That the word faith is used more in the concept of believe in or trust of someone or something. And so when we talk about faith, we talk about our relationship with God and how we grow in our relationship with God. And we, we know, understand this because uh, when you have a relationship like a marriage, you have faith in that person. You have faith that they're going to be faithful. You have faith that they're going to love you till death do us part. You have all these different kinds of, of faith belief, trust statements that you've entered into in that covenant of marriage. Uh, we understand this with athletics because uh, when a coach gets fired, the newspaper often says the Broncos lost faith in or the Chiefs lost faith in, you know, everything. Or the Raiders <laughs> have no business believing anything at all. So, uh, so that's how we've been understanding and talking about this word faith. And so we've looked at several different things that help us grow in our faith. We've, we've considered providential relationships and practical teaching. And, uh, and last week we talked about personal ministry. And today we're going to look at pivotal circumstances. And I want to do this by just looking at a story in Scripture. But first, uh, why is pivotal circumstances? Why is that so important? And, and honestly, uh, many times there is good, positive, pivotal circumstances that work to help us. When I was in high school, I went on my first mission trip. I went to Mindenhall, Mississippi. And if you've never been in Mindenhall, Mississippi, uh, it's, it's so unlike Colorado. It's just astounding. You don't even, it's hard to believe you're still in America. <laughs> and part of that was uh, the culture is so radically different. I remember we had to stop and ask for directions because we got lost. And the guy who talked to us, he's like, I got going down here. Excuse me. You know, it's like we didn't understand what he said. And it was some kind of Mississippi drawl thing going on. And we, it was what? Uh, and that was very different. But the neighborhood that we, that we worked in and lived in was a black community. And they were actually within the flood plain of the Mississippi river. So every time the Mississippi floods, which is pretty much every spring, their homes, their businesses, everything would flood out. And the white part of town was up on this hill and black people. Only one person had been able to buy a home on that part of town. And he was the local lawyer for the black community and the black community. Uh, they couldn't go to the churches in that town in Mendenhall, the sheriff would make a visit to the church and ask them to leave. And uh, if they didn't, they would uh, arrest them. And this was back in, in the late 80s. I just was blown away 
that that existed in this world and in our country still. And that was a pivotal circumstance for me. It was a positive experience. It was a good thing. I'm glad I went. I went every year after that and, and went on many mission trips to different parts of the world. And, and, and those were positive experiences that shaped my experience of God and grew my faith. Uh, but then we also see that there are negative experiences and, and painful experiences and suffering that shapes our faith and grows our faith. And, and that's what this story is about. In fact, we're going to look at a scripture real quick. Uh, First, a quote from C.S. Lewis. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, uh, says this. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, conscience, but shouts in our pains. It, it, It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And I don't know about you, but that's what pain is like in my life. It drives me to God. It drives me to seeking out God. It drives me to seeking out answers. And when things are going well, it's easy to, you know, be lulled to sleep and not pay much attention to my spiritual growth, my spiritual life. But when I'm in pain, when I am in suffering, when I am in turmoil, it seems to just, uh, it seems to work extra hard at shaping my life. This makes sense because when you read James chapter one, you don't need to turn there in your Bibles. It'll be on the screen. Uh, James says this, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. James, what are you smoking? Because, of course, he's in Colorado, right? He can uh, because, you know, that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. You see, the testing of your faith develops perseverance and perseverance. It matures us. Perseverance, finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That's why we rejoice in suffering, because it grows us and it helps us to become more mature. It helps us to become finished, mature followers of Jesus Christ. You see, God uses our circumstances, the circumstances in our life to grow our faith. And if you think about it, we have no control over those circumstances, do we? This past week, Noel Sullivan received not the best news two weeks ago, and it's now a pivotal circumstance in his life. And perhaps you've gotten a news, some kind of news like that from a doctor. Uh, maybe you've gotten a, a, a letter from a spouse. Uh, maybe you've watched in pain choices your child has been making. Uh, maybe it was a terrible accident. Maybe it was... Um, Something that didn't happen to you, but you wish had. All these things are pivotal circumstances. And I want to demonstrate today that many of these things, God is using them to shape and to grow and to mature our faith. But we must cooperate with him. The the scripture we're going to look at today is John chapter 11. And as soon as you start to see this passage and this story, you're going to know how it ends. If you've been around church world at all. And if you have, I want to encourage you to slow down. I want you to to try to enter into the story with the characters. I don't want you to just go, oh, yeah, this ends this way. Poof, I know the story. Let's move on. I want you to slow down, enter into the story, and I'm going to do my best to help you to experience that. In John chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick 
And he was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister, Martha. Now, this was a man and uh, two sisters that Jesus knew very well. Uh, He spent a lot of time with them. And Lazarus gets sick. And so in verse 3, we read that the sisters sent word to Jesus. And look at how they... Look at how they describe Lazarus. They don't even use his name. They just say, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now, Jesus is probably two to three days travel away from their home in Bethany. And the gals send out a messenger. They send this guy and they're like, look, Lazarus is getting ill. He is sick. We need Jesus to show up and help us out. Because uh, the doctor hasn't been able to help him. Because the home remedies, I mean, think about what was it like to get sick in 30 AD? Lifespan wasn't very long. Uh, There wasn't all these amazing medical technologies. Uh, What did you do when you got sick? And for these gals who had seen Jesus heal people, who had experienced him uh, just pronouncing the words and folks that were not nearby would be healed. When a gal who had been bleeding for 10, 15 years touched the hem of his garment, he didn't even have to say anything to her, and the bleeding stopped. These gals knew Jesus and knew his power, and they thought, get Jesus here now. So they sent word. Well, then John continues. And by the way, this is the only gospel that tells this story. And John was there watching. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory. Does that bug anybody, those words? I mean, it's kind of, you know, helpful to read it and go, okay, this sickness isn't going to end in death. So that's reassuring. But when he says this sickness is for God's glory, I don't know about you, but I like things that bring God's glory. Like when I score the winning touchdown at the football game and I'm able to get on TV and I just want to thank Jesus and God and, you know, forgive me the strength to compete today. You know, that's, that's the kind of glory I like, right? Or I wanted to be a rock star for a long time. And so I wanted to get up on stage and be able to say, you know, it's not about the music, man. It's about Jesus. And he's the reason why we're here. And we just give him glory, man. I mean, that, don't you like that? It's a, it's a made to California. Um, I mean, that's the kind of glory we're in for the glory that our life is going great and awesome. And God is blessing us. And it's like, man, this is all for God's glory. And I'm along for the ride and it's awesome. And Jesus says here that this sickness is for God's glory. I don't know about you, but that sends off bells and whistles in my mind because I never read about touchdowns scored for God's glory. I never read about rock stars singing for God's glory. I read about sick people getting sick for God's glory in Scripture. That freaks me out a little bit. He says it's for God's glory. And then he gives this little, it's a henna clause in the Greek, and it's a purpose clause. It tells us the reason. It tells us the purpose so that God's Son who is Jesus, may be glorified through it. So the purpose of Lazarus getting sick is so that Jesus can be glorified. That should be sobering information for us. 
I mean, if anything, this is a, an affront to the prosperity gospel that if you love Jesus and if you love God, he's just going to bless you and everything's just going to be fantastic all your life. Lazarus. I mean, does any of you received a messenger that said, hey, Jesus, come quick. The one you love is sick. Jesus loves Lazarus. There's no question. And even though Jesus loves Lazarus, and even though Lazarus has faith, watch what happens. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. I mean, just in case you don't know that yet, John throws that in. Emphasis. Look how he also puts in, (laughs) I love how they, they put in the and conjunction in between each person. I mean, he wants to make it clear that Jesus loves each one of them. Jesus loves Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. He loves them. So what do you expect somebody who loves them would do? He's setting us up, isn't he? Because if you love them, you probably don't do this. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Did you see why John had to put it in that he loves them? (laughs) Just remind you. Because he's not acting like he loves them. He stays put for two days. The one guy who can fix the problem. We've gone to the doctor. We've gone to the pharmacist. We've tried the home remedies. We tried Jesus. He stays put. And that's the experience many of us have had with Jesus, isn't it? You've waited those two long days or more. And he stays put. You've sent the messages. Oh, God, if you'll help me, if I'll go to church every week and I'll give you money and I'll do all these things. And please, Lord, please, please, please. My kids will become missionaries. I'll do whatever you want me to do. And he just doesn't show up. Oh, God, help me. Oh, God, I need you. Oh, God, help me. Oh, God, please, please, please. And it's quiet. And you're waiting. When that happens, this text tells us, remember, he loves you. He loves you. Sometimes, though, it's not time. So he waited two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. Now, Judea is in the region that Bethany is in. And the disciples freak out a little bit because uh, last time they were in Judea, something bad happened. In fact, they say, but Rabbi, they said a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you. And yet you were going back. So maybe we can understand why Jesus wasn't in a hurry to get back to Judea. Last time he'd been in that part of the world, people picked up some rocks and threw it at him. And the disciples now are starting to remind Jesus, uh, we follow you. They kill you, they come after us. Now, notice how they couch their concern. We don't want you to die, but really they don't want themselves to die, right? And now there's this little interesting story, and I'm not going to get into that because it's a tad bit confusing. And Jesus just says stuff that's like, huh, what? It makes no sense, and we'll maybe deal with that passage later. But jumping down to verse 11, uh, After Jesus had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. (laughs) Now, 
the next verse, there's comedy in the Bible. If you don't read it very often and don't think it's funny, you, you need to read it more often. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Uh, Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. I mean, in another way, they're kind of saying, hey, we really don't want to go to Judea. He fell asleep. He's getting better. We don't know how you know he fell asleep, Jesus. I mean, you are Jesus, but we're not quite sure how you know this. And now you want to go wake him up? We don't think that's a good prescription for his health. You should stay here so we don't go get stoned. Or I mean, you don't get stoned, Jesus. Let's just stay. In fact, remember that day when the Roman centurion showed up and he said, hey, I'm a man of authority and my servant is sick and I don't have, I don't need to have you in my home. So would you just say the words and he will be well? And that that was really cool, Jesus. And this would be a really good time for one of those long distance miracles. Because they can't hit us with the stones from here. I mean, let's let's rethink this, Jesus. And then he says this. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Oh, you said it wasn't going to end in death. You said his sickness wasn't going to end in death. I'm, I'm a little confused. You said he was asleep. Now you're saying he's dead. We don't know how you know he's dead, but you're saying he's dead. And for your sake, <laughs> and for your sake, I am glad I was not there. Uh, what? What about Lazarus' sake or his sister's sake? <laughs> I, I'm sure they're not glad you weren't there. But how about my sake? You're glad I'm, that you weren't there? You see, what is Jesus doing here? Jesus is creating a pivotal circumstance. He is creating a situation where he is willing to let one of his own, whom he loves, suffer and even die so that the disciples, and so that we who read this story later can learn something even more profound. You see, our faith is more important than our healing. And Jesus is orchestrating this whole story, this whole situation. He is orchestrating it all so that we might learn something great. And it irritates me that he'd be willing to sacrifice somebody so this story can be learned. Does it irritate you? What if your life's an object lesson for other people? Do you ever think about that? That's a bummer, right? Like Job. That guy's life was an object lesson for everybody else. But he didn't like it. Lazarus. The sisters. They're about to become an object lesson that we're reading about 2,000 years later, and that we are learning still from this day. And Jesus said he's glad for your sake that he wasn't there. <laughs> My guess is Lazarus and his sisters don't feel the same way. We'll get to them in a moment. And then we get another hint of clause, right? So that... What's the purpose? You may believe. There's our little belief, our faith word, our trust word, so that you might believe. He's glad he's not there because now you have the opportunity to grow in your faith, your belief of Jesus. And I'm sure the disciples are going, huh? I'm so confused, man. 
In fact, Thomas says as much. Uh, I'm not going to read that because it's not on the thing. But he says, all right, it sounds like we're going, so let's go. So we can go die with him. You know, we can end up dead like Lazarus because they're going to stone us all. So great, Jesus. Thanks. Great idea. Jesus is confusing everybody and irritating them all. Do you ever feel that way? Irritated and confused by Jesus? Some of the circumstances and things that happen in your life. Well, then we keep reading. Jesus makes his way to Bethany. um, And the sister of Lazarus, she meets him on the road. And she says this in verse 21. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here. (laughs) How do you think, what tone of voice is she using there? Like one of those motherly tones with the finger in the face. If you had, she's Jewish, right? You got to remember that, right? If you had been here, you know, or whatever, not New York Jew, but anyways, um, if you had been here, if you had been here, some of us have had that conversation with God, haven't we? If you had been here, if you had been here, God, Jesus, he wouldn't be dead. If you had been here, I'm blaming you, God, you didn't show up. You didn't do what I expected. You allowed this thing to happen to me. And the crazy thing is, reading this story, it's clear. Jesus has allowed this to happen. He didn't hurry back to Bethany. He waited. Some of you are wrestling, and I've even heard from some people that I can't follow a God who would allow evil to exist. I can't follow a God. I can't believe in a God who would allow bad things to happen to good people. And if you say that, then you can't believe in the God of the Bible. Because for whatever reason, and we've, we've unearthed some of the reason, so that... God might be glorified so that you might believe these things are allowed by God to happen. They serve a greater purpose. And you may not like it. But in the words of um, McGee, I can't remember his name right now. If you don't like the way this universe is run, then you need to get your own universe. J. Vernon McGee. There we go. So, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Do you think she's right? I think she's right. But I know. Now listen to the faith she's exercising even now. But I know. I believe. I have faith that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And man, her faith honors Jesus. Her faith in these horrible circumstances honors God. Can you say that when bad stuff happens to you? God, if you'd been here, this wouldn't have happened. But even now that it's happened, I believe that you are with me. I believe that whatever it is you want to accomplish, you will accomplish. I believe that whatever it is you want to ask of God to do, you will do it. Tough words. But man, she's a woman of faith. Well, Jesus responds. Your brother will rise again. 
<laughs> You've heard that at funerals before, right? A preacher gets up or somebody, oh, you're, they'll rise again. You'll see him again someday. And Mary, or excuse me, Martha, she reaches into her theological, you know, uh, bag, purse, grabs out some Jewish theology because this is, she thinks that Jesus is talking about what all Jews believe. And she says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. I know that. I know I'll see him again. So it's almost like Jesus is like weaseling his way off the hook here. You know, hey, you're going to see him again. Sorry, I wasn't here in time. But you're going to see him again. But listen to Jesus' response. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me, anyone who has faith in me, anybody who trusts in me. Now, before I get into that, if he's just a good teacher, a nice moral person, good teachers don't say insane things. If he's just a nice guy, I mean, if I come up to you and say, yeah, we have this funeral today. I'm really sorry. You'll see him again someday in heaven. Yes, I know. I'll see him again in heaven someday. But by the way, I am the resurrection and the life. I mean, that's a statement that I got to back up, wouldn't you say? So, you know, I mean, what what am I going to do to back that up? Oh, you're the resurrection and life, are you? Let's see. Prove it. I mean, isn't that what you would think? You think Martha might be thinking that? I think she's thinking that. And so, anyone who believes in me will live, and even though they die. That word believe in? It's one of the first times it's ever used in the New Testament. And the Jew, and, and excuse me, the Greeks didn't have a word for trust. And so John is trying to make up a word that communicates everybody who trusts in me, everyone who trusts me. And so he takes the word faith, pistis, and he adds it to the, the preposition in. And he says, everyone who believes in, it's not believes on or believes something about or, or, or believes, you know, for it's, it's believes in who trusts, who has faith. Everyone who has faith in Jesus Christ will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then Jesus says, do you believe this? And Martha says, yes, Lord. She told him, I believe that you are the Messiah, the son of God who has come into the world. You see how crucial to this whole discussion is faith and belief and trust. And you can see how Martha is struggling because on one hand, she says, if you'd been here. And the reason I, I hold you accountable is because I believe these things. I believe you're the Messiah. I believe you're the son of God. I believe you can heal people. I believe you could have healed my brother. Because I watched you heal the Roman centurion's servant from afar. He's our enemy and you still healed him. And the one you love, Jesus, you didn't heal him? Jesus keeps, are you, do you believe me? Yes, I believe, but I'm really frustrated with you right now. I mean, you've been there. You felt that. If you haven't, you're just not being terribly honest with yourself or God. Well, 
They take Jesus to where uh, Lazarus has been laid to rest, and he's in a tomb, much like what Jesus' tomb was. They, it was an old tomb uh, carved out of probably a family tomb, and it would have been carved out of, uh, out of the rock, and then they would roll a stone in front of it. And Jesus goes, and he, he asks them, where have you laid him? And they say, come and see, Lord. And then the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. It's like in the midst of all that's going on and in the midst of his feelings and in, in the midst of knowing what he's about to do, because it gets really cool. The next part of the story in the midst of all this, Jesus stops and he lets grief overwhelm him. And he lets the the horrible evil of this world and the fact that we die and the fact that his friend Lazarus died he lets it wash over him and he weeps. And it's like to tell us that you're not alone. Jesus understands. He knows there's times he doesn't show up on time. He knows there's times he doesn't do what you want him to do. But there's a purpose and a reason. And even in the midst of that, he weeps with you and for you. Because he loves you. That's the grace in this text. And then they are moved. They see how much Jesus loves him. And then um, Jesus does this crazy request. <laughs> Take away the stone, he said. I missed the wake. I want to see the body. <laughs> I mean, that could be his motivation, perhaps, right? But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor. <laughs> For he has been there for four days. Jesus, you just didn't show up, you know, a few moments after the funeral ended. It's been four days, Jesus. The King James, if you have it, it says, the body stinketh. <laughs> and yeseth it wouldeth. <laughs> the body stinks. There's an odor. They're thinking, what is Jesus thinking here? Are we really going to do this? Are we going to open this? They do it. They took away the stone. And then he does this. He prays this prayer. I'm not going to read it. I'm going to paraphrase it for you. He prays this weird prayer, one that none of us would ever pray because we're not Jesus. And he prays this prayer and he says, hey, God, I'm speaking to you so that these other people can hear me speaking to you. So that they know that I am acting on behalf of you and that you and I are one and we are buddies and we have this we have this relationship that nobody else has that I have with you. And I want them to know that as they're listening to me, are you guys listening to me? You hearing this? That I am doing what you want me to do. Amen. And they're like, OK, that was a weird prayer because we would have usually said, Lord, please help us. But Jesus says, God, you know what I'm about to do. You're listening in on what I'm about to do. Letting everybody know that I'm about to do this and you know all about it. Let's go. And then he does this and think about this because all the movies, how they render this is so interesting, right? When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out, right? I mean, you know, it's like some Charlton Heston moment or something in the movie. And, you know, I mean, what was it like? <laughs> Maybe it's like a kid calling out for his buddy to come out and play. Hey, Lazarus, come out. Or maybe it's like, Price is Right. Hey, you're the next contestant on the Price is Right. Lazarus, come on out. I mean, why would it be just this somber, Lazarus, come out. 
you know. I mean, game show, that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking Jesus is having some fun with these people. I mean, it stinks. Everybody's like, oh, gosh, man, get this over with. Lazarus, come out. And he does. He does. He does, right? Do you believe that? I mean, in our culture, in our day and age, do you know how crazy that is to believe something like that? Because science can't prove this. Bummer. (laughs) Because next week they'll tell me, like, donuts are good for me in science. They'll have learned something new in science. I hope they find barbecue is fantastic for your cholesterol soon. And carrying a little extra weight is really good for you. I'm funding that research right now. Me and McDonald's. You can't prove this. But you can, you can believe the eyewitnesses. You can believe the dead man who talked about it. You can believe the sisters. And you can believe all the people in this text that says they were there and they watched it and they saw it happen. You can believe the guy who wrote it down and said, I saw Jesus do this. He'd been dead for four days. This is not some kind of carnival stunt. No kind of crazy smoke and mirrors thing. I saw it. I was there. It stank. Why do you think, why do you think they would include this story in the scriptures? And if you were going to tell this story, wouldn't you tell it better than this? Oh, Jesus heard the one he loved was sick. So he jumped and ran to Bethany to be with his friend. I mean, why would you tell it this way if it's not true? Why would you make it up this way? This is a horrible story to make up because it paints Jesus in a really bad light. Because he's willing to let you and I and ones he loves suffer for something greater that he is trying to accomplish, meaning growing our faith. That's an irritating story. I mean, if I wrote this story, it'd be so much better than this. And Jesus would be way more, you know, superhero-ish. He would have flown there or something, you know. But look how it ends. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. That's why he did it. That's why he was late. That's why he let him die. So he could grow people's faith in him because he knew soon he would himself die on the cross and he would have this horrible evil of the world exerted upon his flesh and his body. And he would pay for the sins of the world in the most heinous murder in human history. And God would sit there in heaven and do nothing. And he would watch it and allow it. And Jesus on the cross would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And on that horrible day, Jesus knew that my disciples need to realize that I am the resurrection. Because when I tell them I'm going to be gone for three days, not quite as long as Lazarus is four, and I'm going to rise again. And they need to believe this. And I need to back up this claim. Now, it's interesting to me how Jesus orchestrates all of this, this pivotal circumstance in Lazarus' life, in the lives of the, of the disciples, and it's all about pain and suffering and death. 
And it's so fascinating to me how God orchestrates this. It's like he wants it to go down this way. Perhaps you find yourself in a very difficult situation. And you don't know what to do. First off, Jesus loves you. Maybe he hasn't shown up yet, but he loves you. Maybe he's not going to show up in time, but he loves you. And this is an opportunity for your faith to grow. To grow. And there are a couple responses that people have to these kind of situations. One is, forget you, God. I'm out of here. You let this happen to me or my family or my friend or my business or my marriage or whatever. I'm out of here. And that's a legitimate response. Absolutely. But then there are those like Martha who say, I believe. Even though you didn't show up on time. Even though my brother's dead. Even though, yeah, I'll see him again one day. I believe. Philip Yancey, he has this great quote. He says this. There's only one thing worse than disappointment with God. It's disappointment without God. Kind of disappointment do you want to face? Would you, when you are in those difficult situations, would you just ask God, pray that he would give you a sign that he's with you? Pray that he would help you, that he would strengthen you, that he's using this for your faith, for your good, for his glory. And maybe you can't see it, and maybe it is so painful that it is just choking the life out of you. Would you be willing to trust that this disappointment with God is better than disappointment without God? And would you be willing to pray and walk that road in faith with God? Because he's using those circumstances. He's orchestrating those circumstances in your life, even ones we don't like and hate. He is putting those together to grow your faith and to bring him glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, this is some tough medicine. And it's difficult to read that uh, you are okay with us suffering and experiencing pain in our lives. And uh, there's time you let us go through that. And what you do is weep over us. When we'd much rather you come down and save us that you would keep us warm and comfortable. But Lord, we do pray that as we read how you worked in the life of the one you loved, Lazarus and his sisters, for your glory, so that more people would come to know that you are the resurrection and the life, we pray that we would be a testimony in our times of pain and suffering to your goodness, to your grace and to faith in you. Holy Spirit, make it so. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Because when these kind of circumstances happen, we need it. May we walk with God and exercise great faith in him. Amen.